just close your eyes with me for a second. Let's just have a silent moment. Just breathe for a second. Prepare our hearts and our minds to receive from the Word of God. Jesus, we ask that you would shape us by your word today. In your holy name, amen. We are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. The series is called The Way of the Kingdom. Jesus, as he gets up on the mountainside, is presenting himself as the new, the greatest, the culmination of everything that Israel was hoping for in a king, in a Messiah, in a Savior. He gets up and he gives his inaugural address, telling his followers, telling his disciples, telling us through time and space what it's going to look like to be followers of him, what it's going to look like to be citizens of this new kingdom that he was establishing on earth through his ministry. He began his sermon with the pronouncement of nine blessings, and it really showed us that, you know, in our own human mind, we think that, you know, some people are in and some people are out, but, but in a lot of ways, Jesus' kingdom inverts that, and the people we thought were out are actually in, and there's actually access for everybody, no matter how tough you've had it, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how hard it's been, there's actually access to blessing for you. And then he started to identify the fact that when you are one of his followers, you actually give a new, you get a new identity and a new ministry, that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are a preserving agent of that which is good, and you are promoting that which is good and beautiful and true in the world. You have an identity and you have a calling. And so today, as we get into uh, Matthew 5 again, we're starting in verse 17, we get into the heart of the sermon. And Jesus begins to set up um, a bit of a framework for us uh, next week, he starts to get a little bit more practical and give examples of what this looks like, but he sets up a framework for us of what daily life in the kingdom looks like and what it means to have a life that's devoted to Jesus and where that begins. So a big question that Jesus is really answering today is this, how are we to live? How are we to, how are we to live in his kingdom? Moving to Abbotsford just over two years ago, me and my family, we had to answer this question. When we move to a new city, how are we going to live? Where will our kids go to school? What will our budget look like? What activities will we participate in? Who will our friends be? Whenever you enter a new environment, go to a new place, start a new job, live in a new city, go to a new school, you're asking that question, how will I live there? Now, many people in this room were born in or grew up in a different country. Would you raise your hands? Just show us you were born in or grew up in a different country. Look how multicultural our church is. I love that. Okay, so being born in or growing up in a different country, at some point, either your parents or you decided to come to Canada, and you were probably asking yourself a version of this question. How am I to live in Canada? What will life be like there, you were asking questions about housing and work and relationships, but also questions like, what's the culture like? How is it going to be different than what I'm used to? Or questions like, what laws in Canada are different than the laws in my country of origin, and how will I make that adjustment? Is there anything I need to watch out for? Now, uh, last week, 
as Pastor Peter mentioned, our whole pastoral team was in Victoria for our annual district conference. We're a part of a fellowship of churches. Our district is BC and Yukon, about 200 plus churches. So all the pastors from those churches gathered together in Victoria for a week of conference. And um, one thing to note about Victoria is when you're in downtown Victoria particularly, is uh, there's a lot of one-way streets. Now, I grew up in Victoria. I lived there till I was about 31 and uh, then moved away. So it's been about nine years since I've driven there regularly. Even when I lived there, I didn't drive downtown that often. But I was driving one morning, and I had some meetings to go to before the conference uh, events happened. And I was driving, and I hadn't gotten anything for breakfast. So I was looking around, like, where am I going to grab a quick bite to eat? And I'm driving down a main road, and all of a sudden, just kind of kitty corner to where I was, I saw a coffee shop. I was like, oh, I'll stop there. So I quickly signaled and turned, and then all of a sudden, I was faced by three rows of headlights, right? Like, oh, no, I should have known this. Victoria's full of one-way streets. Thankfully, there was a parking spot I quickly ducked into. But, but getting used to driving in Victoria is getting used to a new kind of laws, in a sense, with all these one-way streets that you have to be aware of. It was a different place with rules I wasn't used to anymore. There was actually a lot of strange and weird laws all around the world. And I searched the internet so you know these are true. But let me share a few of these interesting laws. In Switzerland, it's illegal to flush your toilet after 10 p.m. In Ohio, in Ohio, there's a law that allows police officers to bite a dog if they think it's going to help the dog calm down. All right? In West Australia, you aren't allowed to be found in possession of more than 50 kilograms of potatoes. Now, normally laws are created because something happened. What happened? Who is abusing potatoes? I don't know. Here, get this one. In, in Washington State, just south of the border from us, if you are driving a car and you have the intention of committing a crime, you are legally obligated, before you enter the city limits, to call the police and let them know. <laughs> uh, just so you know, uh, I'm going to go rob the corner store on 1st and Main. Yeah. Don't want to break any rules. If you own a pig in France, you're not allowed to name it after the president. <laughs> Something happened. In Thailand, you're not allowed to leave the house without wearing underwear. That's a rule in my house as well. <laughs> Pregnant women in Madagascar are not allowed to wear hats. African friends, please talk to me after the service. Tell them, help me understand this one. Uh, in North Carolina, it's outlawed to sing off-key. There are undercover cops in church all over the place in North Carolina. And here's the last one. Men from Nevada who have grown a mustache are legally prohibited from kissing women. I think the governor is probably a woman and just has had a bad experience. But think about this idea in the context of Jesus' sermon. He's announcing that a new kingdom is being established under his rule. What would our first questions for him be? How are we supposed to live in this kingdom? What are the laws? 
What are the parameters by which we will live our lives under your rule, Jesus? Are there any one-way streets to, to be aware of? How do you feel about potatoes, right? What about hats? We would be wondering these sorts of questions. And more specifically, the, most of Jesus' first followers had a, a Jewish background. So they would have been steeped in the Old Testament traditions of the Jewish law. And so when Jesus comes announcing a new kingdom, they would have wondered, are we sticking with the law that we're used to? Are you making changes? Are you getting rid of the old law and starting a new one? And by the way, where do you get the authority to make changes to the law in the first place? These are the questions in the heart of his followers. So with all this in mind, we read our text for today. Verse 17 of Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How are we to live in Jesus' kingdom? As I said, today kind of sets the parameters for some really practical stuff in the coming weeks. But let's look at this because I think there's two big ideas that we're going to pay attention to today that are important for us to explore. One, Jesus' relationship to the law, and two, Jesus' definition of righteousness. So let's look at Jesus' relationship to the law. He said in verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now bear with me for a second, because uh, if you're serious about the Bible, there's a little bit of stuff that's just helpful to know. Uh, in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or other New Testament authors, they will sometimes use a short form statement like this to talk about the Old Testament. So here Jesus says the law and the prophets. Elsewhere, Jesus just says the law, or another place Jesus says the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in in one sense, when he does that, he's just using that as a way to say the first 39 books of the Bible, Genesis to Malachi. But more specifically, when he says something like the law and the prophets, the law refers to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books outlined basically how the people of God were to live once they entered into the promised land. It talked about all the rules and regulations. It talked about how kings were supposed to rule. It talked about how you were to, to treat people. It talked about all the things you were supposed to do and not do in the land that God was giving them. And so, uh, but then when he talks about the prophets, you have big prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or smaller ones like, like Micah and Zechariah. You have all these prophetic books that really talked about kind of current socio-economic, religious events and, and kind of uh, moments in history where God was moving or judging or shaping things. And so God spoke through prophets to the people about the moment that they were in, but also about the moments that were coming and the arrival of the Messiah. And so Jesus talks about, I'm not getting rid of the law, 
I'm not getting rid of all the things that God said through the prophets. In fact, I've come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. So for the sake of simplicity today, I'm just going to keep referring to this, this idea of the law, just to keep it short firm, short form, and we're talking about the rules, regulations, systems that were in place to govern the people of Israel while they lived in the promised land. The law answered the question for Israel, how are we to live? So this might be a bit oversimplified, but basically the law did this. It governed how people would relate to God and how they would relate to each other. How are we to live in relationship with God? How do you interact with him? How do you properly honor the king and creator of the universe? What are the guidelines for appropriate and inappropriate worship? What do you do if you've messed up? What do you do if you've sinned? And then how are we to live in relationship with each other? What value should I put on human life? What is my responsibility as a husband or as a wife? What's my responsibility to my neighbor? How should the king lead us? What's his responsibility? What happens if my neighbor's fence has a hole in it and his cows come through and start eating my grass? It's literally in there. There's all these laws that govern how you interact with people in addition to how you relate to God. And there was actually a number, 613. 613 commands, either positive commands, you must do this, or negative commands, you must not do that. 613 things to keep track of, to remember what you can and can't do as it relates to living in the promised land, relating to God, and relating to each other. So Jesus shows up, and he presents himself as the new lawgiver. Like Moses, the giver of the original law, he stood up on a mountain and he started to proclaim his teachings. He started to proclaim a kingdom. This is how you will live in my kingdom. And so people started to ask, well, what's happening here? Because as Jesus started to do ministry and as he started to teach, he started to do things that some interpreted as breaking the laws of God. This guy's supposed to be from God. This guy's supposed to be the Messiah. This guy's supposed to be the Jewish king. But he seems to be breaking Moses' law. Like Jesus did stuff like, he, some people interpreted his actions as breaking the law of Sabbath. Where you're supposed to rest on the seventh day and do no work. But Jesus would do things like heal people and preach and teach and other things that some interpreted as breaking the Sabbath commands. And this wasn't just like a minor law. This was one of the Ten Commandments. It was on the top ten list of most important laws in the nation. Jesus, are you, are you trying to say that these laws don't matter anymore? People had seen that Jesus considered his own words as having an unprecedented level of authority, and what he was doing and saying was getting people talking. Maybe Jesus has come to tell us that the law doesn't matter anymore. He's going to get rid of it. He's going to say to move on from it and don't bother anymore. And then he's going to set something else up. Is Jesus, in the words of our text, going to abolish the law? But what did Jesus say? Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' plan was not to scrap the 613 commandments. His plan was not to get, do something else or try plan B, not to abolish it. His plan was to fulfill it. Now, fulfill means pretty much exactly what you think it means. 
It means to fill something up full. Something that's empty gets filled. Take an empty water glass that's just sitting in your cupboard. You take it out. You fill it full of water. You have fulfilled the glass. Jesus came to fill full the 613 commandments of God. This means at least two things, at least two big things. First of all, it means that Jesus lived up to the standard of the law. He lived up to the standard of the law. Jesus was and is the first and only person whose life was perfectly and completely aligned to all the requirements of the law. The law was given as a a guide to govern God's people, but the story of the Old Testament is that God's people consistently failed to live up to the law. They consistently broke every single law on the list, all 613 of them, and it resulted in terrible consequences, some natural consequences, some divine consequences. And this isn't hard to relate to. You and I constantly fail to live up to what's required of us. It can be an accident, like going down a wrong, you know, the wrong way on a one-way street. But just because it was an accident doesn't mean I didn't break the law. And just because it was an accident and it was innocent doesn't mean it couldn't have had significant consequences. If there was a police officer nearby, I could have gotten a ticket. If, if someone was crossing the street only looking one way because they didn't think someone dumb as me would come the other way, they could have gotten hurt. There could have been significant consequences to that broken law. You and I, we break the laws of our land. We break moral and ethical laws, things that aren't necessarily illegal, but they're ethically wrong or immoral. And this is maybe the most damning part. You and I can't even live up to the standards we give ourselves. Things that aren't necessarily illegal, things that aren't necessarily immoral or, or unethical, we make commitments. We say, I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to drink that again. I'm never going to go there again. I'm never going to yell at my kids again. I'm never going to do this or that again. And then we do it again and again. And we go, I can't even live up to my own standards. So you can be here, and maybe you don't believe in the Bible. Maybe you don't believe in God. But even your own standards that you expect of yourself, you're not able to live up to them. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Everything from law-breaking to immorality to not even living up to your own standards? The Bible word for that is sin. And sin is not just what we do. Sin is actually a part of our nature. That there's something broken within the human heart that even though we want to do good, even though we want to live well, we fall back into sin. And there are consequences to sin. There's natural consequences to sin, and there are divine consequences to sin. But Jesus is the only person in history who has ever lived a life with no sin. He perfectly lived up to the standards of the law. Think about this with an image my children might appreciate more than most of us. Imagine those 613 commandments are 613 levels in the world's hardest video game. You and I have tried our whole lives to beat the game. 
that every time you fail one level, it sends you all the way back to the beginning to start again. And no matter how hard you've tried, no matter how much time you put into it, you just can't get there. But Jesus, on the first try, passed all 613 levels, defeated the final boss called death, and he is the only person whose name is on the high score list at the end of the game. Come on, someone likes that. No one, no one, you, I, no one else in history has been able to live up to the standards of the law. No one could beat the game. Jesus did. He fulfilled the law. And something about his fulfillment of the law is applied to those who trust and believe in him. You didn't fulfill the law. I didn't fulfill the law, but Jesus did. You didn't fulfill the law. You didn't beat the game. I didn't beat the game, but Jesus did. And he carries us along, and when we put faith in him, we receive the same standing and status as him. Our name gets listed on the list of highest scores equal to Jesus, even though we didn't do it. That's the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. But there's more. <laughs> because the purpose of the law was not just to create strict adherence and obedience to a set of rules. That's not the heart of God. That's not why God gave the law to Israel. The law and God had something else in mind. To fulfill the law meant more than just living up to its standard, to fulfill the law meant to accomplish its purpose. Jesus accomplished the purpose of the law. Think back, I talked about a glass of water. When you fill the glass of water, you're fulfilling it. For the glass to fulfill its intended purpose, it must be filled with liquid. It must be used as a vessel for drinking. When you do that, you fulfill the glass. You fulfill its purpose. If you only use the glass as a paperweight, it might be useful, but it hasn't fulfilled its ultimate purpose. That's not what it's for. If you only look at the glass as an ornament, admiring its shape, its transparency, or its capacity, that's not fulfilling its purpose. It only becomes fulfilled when you pour water into it and use it to drink. Jesus often criticized the religious leaders for basically this. Uh, you're obsessed with following the law in all its details, but in your zeal for law-keeping, you've missed the purpose of the law. The Pharisees were obsessed with their cup collection. They were obsessed with organizing their cup collection. They were obsessed with looking at how beautiful their cup collection was, cleaning their cup collection, telling everybody how wonderful their cup collection was. But never did they actually fill one of those cups with water and drink from it. They completely missed the point of the cup itself. The point of traffic laws isn't just to control traffic. The point of traffic laws is to help keep people safe. It's about people. And so is God's law. Jesus fulfilled the law by accomplishing its purpose. So what's its purpose? Well, as Jesus continues in our passage, he starts to use this term in verse 20, righteousness. He starts talking about righteousness. Verse 20 says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament as well. Romans 10.4 Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus is the culmination or it could be translated the end of the law, the goal of the law. The, the goal of the law was to bring Jesus into the world so that through Jesus we might receive righteousness. And this leads to the second big idea today. We talked about Jesus' relationship to the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it means he accomplishes its purpose. The purpose is to bring righteousness. So it begs the question, what does he mean by righteousness? So number two, Jesus' definition of righteousness. This is kind of a churchy word, right? It's kind of a religious Bible word that doesn't get used much just at work or at school, but it's an important word to understand. We, we use it sometimes, and uh, we misunderstand it or we misuse it. We think of things like self-righteousness, and when we think of a self-righteous person, we think of someone who thinks they're better than other people, someone who looks down on other people. I'm great. I've accomplished a lot by my own strength. I'm, I'm smart. I'm, I'm talented. So I'm here. You don't have what I have, so you're down here. That's what we think of a self-righteous person. Or sometimes when we think of righteousness, we just think of what the Pharisees thought of. We just think of like someone who does all the right things. Someone who's going to church, someone who's reading their Bible, someone who's praying, someone who's, you know, helping the poor, someone who's just doing all the right things. They're checking off all the boxes, following all the commands. They're not breaking any of the rules. They are the righteous people. That's how the Pharisees understood righteousness. If you can follow the 613 commandments, you will be righteous. The problem was, no one could, not even them. But there's a flaw in the system. How can you be righteous if no one can do what it takes to be righteous? The other flaw in the system was the 613 laws couldn't predict every situation you were in. And so what happened was uh, the religious leaders over time actually added a whole bunch more rules to the list. It went from 613 in the Bible, and then they added other writings and things outside the Bible with extra rules because they kept coming across situations that the Bible didn't necessarily talk about specifically. And so now there's hundreds and hundreds of more things for you and I to memorize and remember and try not to break on our, in our everyday life. But it's still impossible to cover every situation. Think a couple thousand years later in our lives. I know there's some people in our church who at least used to be cattle farmers. So that whole broken fence, cattle are grazing on my side of the fence law might be practical for you, but it's not practical for me. Right? Some of you live in a town or a condo unit with a thousand neighbors. What does the Bible say about relating to my thousand neighbors who live in the same building as me? What does the Bible say about artificial intelligence? What does the Bible say about how to use social media? These are the things we need to know today. I don't need to know about cows grazing in the field and things that, you know, people 4,000 years ago had to deal with in an agrarian culture. So are we supposed to just make more and more and more and more and more rules to govern our lives? No, that's not the point. 
Jesus didn't think the law was a bad thing. In fact, our text said he told us it's a good thing, and we don't have a ton of time to get into that. You'll talk about it a little bit if you're in a connect group this week. But the law was not created to create people who are sticklers for rules, and righteousness is not just about strict adherence to rules and perfectly aligning yourself to the list. Righteousness is about relationships. Righteousness is all about relationships. The term righteousness is actually a term of relationship. If you came with a spouse today, and you guys are mad at each other, maybe there's a little bit of space between you in the pew today. You've been fighting this week, you're angry, you're frustrated. He didn't do that, yeah, but she did that, and you got this, mm. your relationship lacks righteousness. You're in, unri- you're in an unrighteous state. Now, if things are great, if things are harmonious, there's peace in your home, you not only love each other, but you actually like each other today, then you have a righteous relationship. Now, married people, again, let me ask you, when you're in times of tension and you're frustrated and you're mad and things are, there's no harmony in the home and, and you can't work it out, is the solution to add a whole bunch more rules and regulations to govern your relationship. It's good to create boundaries. It's good to have kind of systems in place to help your relationship. But when things aren't going well, extra rules don't necessarily make it better. It just creates more burden. Creates more things that you could actually break to create more unrighteousness in the relationship. So Jesus knows that the, the, the need for the law is ju- not just the rules. The purpose of the law was to help people have a righteous relationship with God and a re- righteous relationship with each other. It wasn't to help people have a righteous relationship with the law. It wasn't about the law itself. It was to help people relate to God and to relate well to each other. And more than just teaching you how to follow rules, it was trying to help you become the kind of person who lived a righteous life out of the desires of their heart, not just because a book told you to. Restraining the sinful nature through systems of reward and consequence ultimately don't change the heart toward God or others. Now think about what Jesus said about the law in multiple places. When he was asked by a religious leader, what's the most important commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus talking about? What's the purpose of the law? He says, all the law and all the prophets hinges on those two commandments. So what's the purpose of the law? To love God and to love your neighbor. The purpose of the law was to to create an opportunity for you to have a righteous relationship with God and a righteous relationship with your neighbor. And so Jesus says, you need to have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Which was a sh- would have been a shocking statement because in the minds of his first followers who had grown up learning under the teachers of the law and under the, the leadership of the Pharisees, they would have thought, these guys are more righteous than I could ever imagine myself being. 
They're better at following those 613 laws plus all the other ones than I could ever imagine myself following. How could I possibly have a righteousness better than theirs? Because Jesus is saying true righteousness is not just about following the rules. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law might be pretty good at following the rules, but they don't love. Their hearts have not been transformed. Jesus talks to them all the time about this. He says, great, you look good on the outside, but inside there's death, inside there's self-righteousness, inside there's pride and fear and hatred and anger. That's not the righteousness I have called you to. See, what's interesting is when you learn to love like Jesus loved, without even referring to the list of rules, you'll follow them. Because your heart is already aligned with Jesus to walk with him and to love others. And you'll be able to discern what is good in situations that aren't talked about in the list. You'll learn to discern what it means to be a 21st century Christian in a condo unit or dealing with AI or social media issues because you've got a heart that's righteous, not just the ability to follow a list of rules. I had a Bible college professor who's with Jesus now, and he used to say, we all have a little Pharisee living inside of us. You know what I'm talking about? We all have a little Pharisee. We all have this judgmental attitude toward the actions of others where we think we're a little bit better than them because we've, we've made it here, we've made it there. And we judge people's righteousness on external actions. So let me give you, just quickly, I just want to do this just quickly. Let me give you five quick signs that that little Pharisee is alive and well. Number one, you know all the right things to say, but don't always do what you say. Number two, your faith is mainly a show to be seen by others. You're really good at being a Christian at church. You're different at work, you're different at home, you're different at school. Number three, you add rules that aren't found in the Bible, and then you expect others to follow those rules or else they're a bad Christian. Number four, you lack compassion for people in need. I mean, if they were only as smart as me, if they had only worked as hard as me, they wouldn't be in that situation. Or number five, instead of confessing and repenting of sin, you cover it or justify it. If any of those things relate, and I'm telling you, I'm on this list. If any of those things relate, there's a little Pharisee alive and well in your heart. And that's the Pharisee that says, all you have to do is check off the list. All you have to do is look right on the outside, and that's all that's required. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's a fake kind of righteousness. Remember last week how there was the two kinds of salt? They both looked the same, but one had lost its saltiness. Remember, there were two kinds of light, both, both light, but one had been covered. Jesus has already warned us that there's a counterfeit version of what he's talking about. That we can have a right, we can have two people who on the outside both follow the rules, but one of them has been transformed from the inside out by Jesus, and one of them is doing it just out of pride and self-righteousness and anger and hatred. Same actions, totally different inside. Jesus says, 
there's only one kind of righteous person that will be a part of my kingdom. Here's the good news. The promise for you and for me. God spoke through the prophets. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill not just the law, but the prophets. God spoke through the prophets that there was good news for us. Ezekiel 20, or 36, verse 26 to 27, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, your stubborn heart, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God promises that he's going to give us a heart and a spirit that isn't just restrained by the law, but a heart and a spirit that wants to follow the way of the kingdom, that delights in following the way of the kingdom. It's not just about restraining my outward actions, but it's about living out of my heart and my soul, the new nature that God is going to give me through his power. That's the miracle Jesus does when we give our lives over to him. To the prophet Jeremiah 31, verse 33, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God doesn't want you just to be restrained by a list. He's going to put his law in your heart so it becomes what you want to do, not what you have to do. What's great is Paul in the New Testament maybe reflecting on this idea in 2 Timothy 3. He actually says, listen, we don't throw away the Bible just like Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He says the Bible remains useful. Look this up, 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible remains useful for training in righteousness. It's still useful for training in righteousness. But what we need is a transformation with a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit. And that doesn't come from external pressures. That doesn't come from rewards and consequences. That comes by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ pouring his spirit into our lives through the blood that he shed on the cross. It's a gift of God for those who believe. So if you're tired of struggling and straining and trying to be a good person, stop and just submit to Jesus because he wants to give you the gift of righteousness, a new heart, a new mind, his law written into your desires so that you're not just someone who's able to follow rules, but you're someone who wants to be righteous. Someone who finds joy and satisfaction in a right relationship with God and others. Not because you have to, but just because you love God. Why would you want to hurt God when you love him? Why would you want to hurt your neighbor when you love him? We need new motivations, and that comes as a gift from God. Even if we try, even if you really dedicate yourself, even if you just say, I'm going to set everything else aside and I'm just going to do the right things, it just won't work. The problem is we have this stubborn, wicked heart that's fighting us the whole way and we need a transplant. We need God to remove that one and give us a new one. In the same way, we can't give ourselves righteousness in the same way that a cup cannot fill itself with water. We need Jesus to fill us with righteousness, to transform us from the inside out. 
Paul, reflecting on the ministry of Jesus, says this about living in righteousness, Romans 3, 21 to 22. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. The righteousness of the heart motivated through love, not produced through effort. It's a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. So how are we to live in the kingdom of Jesus? We are to live in righteousness. And that righteousness is available only through faith in Jesus Christ. So today I invite you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him, to submit your life to him. You cannot be righteous on your own. But through Jesus, your life can be transformed. Listen, some of us need to repent, and I'm on this list too. Some of us need to repent because that little Pharisee is probably actually a big Pharisee. And we've been living just with this external righteousness and this, this judgmental attitude toward others. We go to church, we read our Bibles, we don't steal or cheat or lie, except on our taxes. But it's only an external righteousness, and our hearts are far from God. We need to repent too. Unless our righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a transformed heart. The band is going to come back up. In a moment, we're going to go into communion. And the symbols of communion, the body and blood of Christ, are what was required to make a way for you and I to receive by faith the righteousness required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's the work that needed to be done wasn't done by you, wasn't done by me, it was done by Jesus, who fulfilled the law. And faith in him, and faith in what he did through his broken body and his shed blood, gives us the righteousness required. Enter into God's holy presence. to Receive everything he has for us. And to be with him forever in eternity. Would you stand with me? Let's pray as we prepare for communion. I want to encourage you to just close your eyes and center your thoughts and your focus on the presence of God. And like you would do to receive a gift, just put your hands out in front of you just as though you're physically going to receive a gift from Him. I just want you to join me. There's probably something from today, hopefully, that the Spirit is speaking to you about when it comes to your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Maybe there's a little Pharisee that needs to die. Maybe a big one. Or maybe you've just never put your trust in Jesus. You've been trying in your own strength, in your own way for so long, but now is the time. Jesus wants to give you the gift of righteousness. Jesus wants, you to, give, wants to give you the gift of a new heart and a new spirit, a renewed mind. Jesus wants to give you the gift of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. 
That's what he came to do. That's why his body was broken. That's why his blood was poured out. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed even to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But today, Lord, we put our faith in you. We ask that by that faith, you would give us as a gift a better kind of righteousness than we have pursued. A righteousness that surpasses just adherence to moral codes and laws and rules or even things we think are are Christian requirements. Lord, we're tired of just trying and straining and and having a, a fake and a false front. Lord, give us a new heart. Give us your spirit. Give us a new mind. Write your law on your, our hearts and our minds. Give us a desire for righteousness. Give us a desire and a passion for holiness. Lord, give us a heart for all that is good and pure and holy, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to not walk in the way of the Pharisee and the self-righteous and the judgmental, but give us your humility and your grace and your life. We want a righteous relationship with you, Lord God, and a righteous relationship with our neighbor. So God, if there's any sin that stands in the way of us and you, we ask for your forgiveness in Jesus' name. And if there's anything, Lord, we are doing to to push our neighbor away instead of loving our neighbor, God, transform that situation, we pray. I pray for marriages, Lord God, marriages that are struggling, relationships that are strained. We pray for righteousness in those relationships, for healing, for forgiveness, for life, for hope, and for peace. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the promised land. Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for love for God and love for neighbor. Lord, we don't have all the answers. It's so complicated. It's so easy to say the wrong thing. But God, you love people. You love people. You don't want people hurt and harmed, misled, lied to. You don't love injustice. You don't love violence. You don't love hatred. So God, intervene. Bring righteousness, we pray. When in human effort there is no solution, God, we know that you have the answer. And for people on both sides of the border who have said no to Jesus and yes to their own lords and gods, we pray in Jesus' name that Christ would be revealed and that through your power, through your strength and your mighty hand, the world would be turned around and peace would come. God, we love you and believe in you and trust in you. Please do a miracle in our hearts. It's impossible without you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come now? Please feel free to come to the front. Any of these three stations, grab your communion elements. There's a station up in the balcony somewhere as well. Please grab those, head back to your seat, and then I'll lead you through that. The band's just going to sing as you prepare.